it's picked up this thing called a djembe. So, Never heard of it. Uh, real quick, I'm in the studio here with David Brown. We uh, he's uh, we we're just talking some percussion, world percussion. Uh, a djembe is like an it's like African percussion. All right, all right. right oh, I see it. Yeah. yeah. How so, awesome is that? It is super so is cool, that man. to hold in your lap? Yeah, put it between your okay. knees. All right, uh, all right. And just kind of boom, you hit that little right. bass drum right there. Yeah. So you get like really more tom sounds right there. Yeah. Nice. Oh, that's awesome. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's it's so bassy. But uh, back up just a little bit more and just give it a boom right in the middle. Yeah, right? Feel it. Yeah, yeah, that's sweet. I love just, just jamming go. acoustically with that. Uh, we could we could play a little music if you want after the podcast. Yeah, I I think sometimes we are intimidated by in new endeavors. For sure. So people don't try out new stuff. Yeah. I don't think you have to learn to be a percussionist. You know, the hardest part of percussion for me on a traditional kit, which my buddy Dylan has, um, I guess Sandy just bought the same kit. It's sweet. But he, like Sandy's come over and played with me a few times across the hall. Yeah. And, um, I can't do the, th like that. And then I had a cajon for a long time. That's what I thought you were going to yeah, say. Yeah, man. And right. but like doing two things at once, like, do -ka -do -ka -do -ka sure. but like doing this and then adding the foot. Cause a lot of times when I do cajon, I would put the uh, tambourine under my foot. Sure, sure. Or I would see people do like the cajon, a tambourine under their foot and a shaker. Yeah. Yeah. And man, three things at once. But why difficult. does it have to be that? That's what I'm getting at. It can be what you want. Exactly. So I'm saying in the womb, literally, the first thing that we're exposed to is the heartbeat. It's the rhythm of life. I mean, literally is the rhythm of life. And everything about what we do, like you probably practice mindfulness, meditation. So you start getting lost in this thing that is a rhythm. It's the rhythm of your heart. It's the rhythm of your breathing. It's yes, it's crazy. I got kind of, I did get kind of wrapped up in my, I do, when I stretch, like you'll hear me breathing, like deep belly breathing. Like we right. usually do some sort of like, you know, maybe run around the room, high knees, uh, jumps, jumping jacks, whatever. Like right. yesterday, for example, we did uh, shuffle step, jumping jacks, high knees, butt kickers, jumping, bringing your knees up. Mm -hmm. uh, this kind of got got your heart rate going for a couple minutes, and then it was like, all right, let's start move movement stretching. So it's like moving our shoulders up and down in circles, and um, just moving all your joints. And like the whole time I'm doing that, I I like noticed that I got in a pattern on my breathing. Of course you did. And it was actually like I've been focused on my breathing more than ever for the last probably like year and a half. Yeah. Uh, and then why did, why did you get interested in that? Mostly Hicks and Gracie, man. Yeah. Uh, and then Crone too. And like, they're both putting out their information on like their take on it. Yeah. So I've just been kind of like, here's the greatest way. I mean, there's, I've studied a little bit of yoga. We have a yoga instructor. I don't get to go to class as much as I want. Um, but when I do go, I add that stuff into my routine. Right. Like I did a bunch of like spinal movements this morning for right. example that I, yeah. I you know are in def are definitely in yoga but the, so there's breathing exercises there but hickson and crone they were saying like the deeper belly breathing is so good for fighters yeah and it's like imagine massaging your diaphragm while you have no air in your lungs yeah so like i can kind of do mine like this like up and down mm -hmm. so just kind of you don't you don't have any air in your lungs and you sure yeah i'm with you they can roll 
yes. like this. Yes. Yeah. There's a video of Hickson doing it on the internet. I'm, I'll actually just go ahead and cast it up so you can see it. It is mind blowing. Will the audience get to see it? Uh, the audience will not get to see it. That's uh, why that's we have so to build up, this. The, yeah, but you know this. Here's what's crazy. Joe Rogan the other day broke down his uh, like I knew. He broke down his audio listenership versus his video. He'll say, right. like, we might get one million viewers for a video podcast on YouTube. You take and you look at all the audio, it be it might be ten million. Right. Yeah, that sounds about right. So yeah, yeah, it, yeah. the audio only people, even Cora yesterday, she was she did a podcast with me on our MMA show uh, that I do about every week, and um, she was listening to it when I got home last night on the audio. Right. But what's weird is, dude, I only listen to stuff on YouTube. Yeah, I do that. It's weird. Now, I'm, I, I'm I did start that that, um, that uh, Jordan Peterson um, oh, audio. The audio book, yeah. Yeah, but uh, that was on, uh, what, Audible? Yeah, yeah. Audible. So, but, uh, man, Hickson's breathing, and his son does it, too. And, man, my coaches talked about it, and... I know that uh, I know that you studied some martial arts um, many and, moons ago. What uh, what style was Yoshikai. that? Yoshikai. Yeah. Is so. What is that? Do you know what the Japanese translation for that particular? I, I don't know. I wonder I don't if remember. it has if it translates into into willow. I'll look that. I up don't in know. A, a It'd minute. be interesting because um, a lot of your um, traditional Japanese martial arts styles, um, like family styles, for example, right, are. Um, based off of these uh it's not uh like judo was like a statewide uh by the time that judo started coming to prominence um it, there were like 2000 japanese jiu-jitsu styles yeah. right and i don't yeah. was that a, was that a more an okinawan uh i don't honestly know i feel, All I I could feel tell like you, it was a japanese martial art right i know that it's japanese at least uh insofar as uh where it's credited to have begun and also know that uh it's been passed down that it has a grandmaster and it's a very old tradition uh i would say by philosophy what we were taught was it is uh it's about economy of motion mm -hmm. it's it's unfancy i mean if you want to think okay, about it, it is, like it that. is actually uh if it, i'm looking it's a karate style okay but Open that's hand, a, that's yeah karate. but that's the thing about um a lot of your karate styles have um do you guys do any throws takedowns anything like that here's the thing about my experience with that now I'll, I'll tell you oh that was so awesome Sorry, yeah, I'm not. Uh, yeah, okay, so just real quick for for people that want to watch this video, this is great. I show uh, it's Hicks and Gracie choke 1999 Kundalini Yoga Breath of Fire Crazy Abs Breathing is the name. Of it. yeah. It's just a six or seven minute just clip. Very, yeah, it's a very short title. People I do watched this, this entire uh, oh, it's documentary. So, so good. It man. was fascinating. Did you? Um, this guy rocked. My where'd world. you hear? Where did you hear? Michael. Okay, great. From Michael man. Lasseter. He. So yeah. So we have. Uh, if you guys uh, listen, um, so David Brown here uh, is. We have a lot of the same friends. We yeah, mentioned we do. Sandy, Michael Sandow. That's he's been right. on the podcast. Uh, Blake is going to come on at some point. Yeah, I told him this um, morning. I was coming here and he said well i need to do it I said, yeah yeah yeah, you I, do. yeah i mean i'm just man i love net like uh i love network so we first met and you were you were in you were doing some journalism that's right, right. i worked for river valley leader a local online news outlet and uh i just got an assignment to do uh uh, you did a you, you did an awesome job on that because uh, we really we even it. share it uh, and too man I remember like choking up during the interview I was just like oh, but, yeah, just so you, happy did you view that as a mistake no no excuse man me. I am too like anytime uh, 
anytime somebody that is close to me does something that's right. inspiring, like right. I just get emotional about yeah, it. Yeah, I yeah. was talking, uh, we did, uh, we promoted some uh, black belts at our gym on Saturday. Right. And uh, they're like, okay, Brian, what do you have to say? And I was like, oh, this is so good, you know? Right. You know, is this, uh, right. I, I get Does emotional that mess about with it. your personal sense of masculinity at all? No. Good. Um, it is weird uh, how I get kind of that way, but it's like, dude, you know, sometimes I just like, I just cry. I do too. And here's something fascinating. I thought my, well, my uncle was a Marine. He was like my dad. Mm-hmm. So he came home from Vietnam and then he began raising me because yeah. I was born in 70. This was about 72. So he had what you would think of as your typical John Wayne, strong, silent type. It's a stoicism. Mm-hmm. And there's some benefit to be had. Ooh, here it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's about to really start. So, so right now he's just doing that up yeah. and down sort right, of. But right, man, right. he starts freaking me out. Do you there. notice how much rhythm plays into what he's doing? Well, yes, and then too, like the rhythm of like the spinal wave, like yeah. like actually yeah. moving your spine because what? they say that's what Kundalini is: is taking like from your tailbone and like rolling. Right. Like breath and energy up and down your spine. So I know we've gotten four different subjects going here. Masculinity is what we'll get back to here in a second. So uh, I'll back up to your original question about Yoshikai. Uh, my grandmother, who was like a mother to me, she raised me. Uh, she's a genuine Southern uh, lady. And so uh, she could cook and clean and all of that stuff, but she was also a crack shot could drive a car like nobody's business, right? Yeah, 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 And so I was young, and I was always a small kid. And so she put me in martial arts as early as possible. I think I was seven when I started. And her deal was, you know, son, you're small. You're going to need to learn how to take care of yourself. So that was the way she looked at it. That's why she put me into martial arts. So uh, when, when I started with Yoshikai, uh, the sensei there at the gym would have us do a breathing exercise. So before we got started, of course, we did our warm-up, and we did our stretching. And then before we would go, which most classes was sparring. Like, we did some katas and stuff like that, but mostly it was contact, 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 contact. We learned from doing, you know. We watched maybe once, and then we would just do, do, do. So the breathing exercise mentally, for me, I guess different people took different images. I would, in my mind, walk through a, a, a forced path had to be beautiful. It had to sort of put me at ease. Relaxation's so big, man. It's huge. Uh, and then I would come upon a tree, and it would just be so big that as I, as I start looking up the trunk of that tree, that the very top of it would almost be out of sight, like in the clouds. And then in my mind, I would see a leaf detach. And then I would try to match my breathing. I would breathe in as slowly as possible. And as I breathed in, the leaf would sort of fall in this direction and then at the end it would just kind of hang there for a minute and i would feel because i mean i'm i need to some air at this point right <clears throat> and then i would let it drift the other way and that was out I, i'm relaxing just thinking about that. well it works and so by the time that leaf hits the ground i am in a different place i don't know how to explain it except to say i am mentally relaxed but physically i am like a coiled spring. I've uh, I've heard uh, several people that have um, 
that have like went and done therapy, like with a psychologist and, uh, for different reasons, like, Hey, I, you know, like they might have ADHD or like just that, um, when they, like people start getting anxiety about their environment to do exercise exactly what you just said. Right. It's fundamental. Yeah. You know, I just, um, like I teach Blake, um, one of, so one of my coaches is, trained in some super legit uh like one of these family styles i was mentioning and um i've trained with them over the years kind of on the side and like i've gotten way more involved in it i've probably been studying it for uh five years uh we uh like we just call it weeping style oh right yeah he right? told me yeah that. exactly I looked that up to see why they so call that's it why that. i was asking you well so it, the willow tree yeah. weeping willow sure. right but um that's why I was asking you, like Yoshin and Yoshikai. Like I, I'm going to do some uh, research on that because oh, after sweet. we were talking the other day. Because man, I'm super interested. What's unfortunate is that due to a variety of factors, World War II, mm-hmm. the uh, advent of judo and proliferation of and reinvention of into sambo and Brazilian jiu-jitsu, um, and then too uh, the historical manipulation of judo. And at the point in which, like, from the time the samurai started to kind of fall into these bureaucratic roles under the Tokugawa shogunate until um, the Maji Restoration, that was when these styles, uh, according to my research and opinion, really started to um, become, uh, I don't want to say less effective, but um, dissegmented. Yes, right. right. Like, like I said, at the time judo comes around the Maji Restoration, Maji Restoration is 1868, judo is 1882. You have up to 2,000 styles. Right. So it's a it's sort of a patriarchal system. So when heads die, um, they maybe pass on the style to an, a different sure. soke, I think right. is what they call S-O-K-E, mm-hmm. a different mm-hmm. head, or a new style forms or whatever. So this weeping style is apparently one of these styles, and I can find a lot on some different styles. Like um, there's some translations would be uh, uh, willow heart tree, weeping willow, willow tree. There's all these kind of variations. So like when you jack someone up in a lock or mm-hmm. go hands-on with them, a lot of times they'll like come up on their tippy toes in some way. Sure. Especially if you have them in any sort of like a joint manipulation. Sure, Absolutely. So, like, a, like Aikido, for example, is based largely on these releases and wrist locks. Right, right. Now, while weeping style is not only what in Jap- in judo they call it kensetsu waza, it's uh, and katami waza would may basically be standing joint locks. Mm-hmm. That's a big part of that system. So, I like studying it just like I like studying muay thai and boxing right. and everything That's else. That's the I approach. Study. That's the magic. And what you're talking about is that uh, some of these styles almost became caricatures of themselves. It's like uh, if a group of people gets too inbred, the offspring starts, uh, you know, suffering as a result. Oh, I it's talk, like yeah, that. dude, I was just talking about that with the Habsburgs and uh, well, pre-enlightenment go. Europe because sure. uh, what was, I think it was Charles... I don't want to tell you wrong. The number. It, it, okay, it was. Uh, it, it, I think it was Philip II of Spain. Okay. We're just gonna say it was. It was a Spanish monarch, and 
what happened is uh, this one historian that I kind of follow would call this uh, Hickson about to throw this dude. Okay, it's flash. Hickson threw a dude out of the ring for not fighting him one time. Yeah. <laughs> that, look, that really blew my mind. I know. He's just like, get out of here. And then he, after he throws him over, he front kicks him. Well, he has no respect for that. If yeah. you show up and you do what you can, there's respect. But I wouldn't either. Like, don't show up. Exactly, man. Just don't show up. But don't. Don't, don't, don't hug the rope. What was I got distracted on that? that. Well, I saw him through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Through, no, I was I like, it. I love so, this moment. Yeah, you were talking about inbreeding in the hat. Oh, okay, okay. Empire, so with he, uh, this historian that uh, that I like, he's like, he's like, well, you know what happened with some of these cousin marrying monarchs is they would. I mean, it's just like Game of Thrones, man. He's yeah. like, they, you know, they had this jaw, and they would have these. They would start having these genetic deformities, yeah, particularly uh, this like big overbitten. Uh, it's an underbite, underbite actually, yeah. Yeah. on their jaw. And um, like a classic, you could see, you could look at their portraits and sure. you could be like, whoa. Yeah. But uh, he hit a point where like, so some of these monarchs you hear that's like, well, they just couldn't produce a, an heir is because they were inbred. So oh, this right. guy reached like, he's like, inbred level five. <laughs> he's like, that's when mother nature just turns you off. Yeah. You don't get to no, produce. No, that's right. Yeah, there's there's room in the genetic code, which is 3.5 billion letters long, worth of A's, C's, G's, and T's. It's an amazing Man. thing. Genetics are fascinating. My For wife sure. knows more about the, uh, like, because she'll tell me, she knows about, like, traits. And sure. I can can do things. And, like, she can look, she looks at somebody like a like like we have like she, they're a puzzle. Well, in a in a way, so like she right. runs the kids programs at the at the school for the most part. She's program director of the kids, mm -hmm. and um, she'll be like, "Isn't it cool that uh, you know Heather and Micah they're like this, and the kids are like this because they're like." The, and she just knows the combination of, and that's why she has red hair, right? And right. I'm like, "Well, look, mind. it is fascinating, but uh, there are limits, like there are in any system, and so you." If you don't color within the lines, you're right that nature will sort of take care of that for you. Yeah. But the point on the martial arts is I think that's something that MMA is new to me. So when I was taken, it was uh, the late 70s, early 80s. When how, was, how old were you? Just I'm almost 50. I'm 48. Yeah. So this was a long time ago. Yeah. But so I had no concept of uh, other martial arts until I started making some friends with people who did different styles. Yeah. And then Bruce Lee impacted me too because oh, yeah. that was his philosophy. He was I saying, love the Taoji Kundo, man. One of my coaches gave me that when I kind of went out on my own. It was, right. And so he was actually, he was an iconoclast because he wasn't just holding the party line. He learned what there was to learn from Kung Fu. But he didn't think, okay, this pinhole is how you must see the entire universe. He figured out, look, what it is, is it's what works. So look around you, learn from everything that you see, and then incorporate that. Because the goal isn't to try to fit everything into a single uh, uh, box. The goal is to try to understand as much as you can and adapt and harmonize. And so I think he was on to it. And maybe that is the, the principle behind MMA. I mean, the first M is for mixed. It's about taking yeah, from yeah, what's yeah. there. I really, right? so like, I try not to be this way. Like, um, so the only time I ever get, like, I would say, like, maybe offended as a practitioner is when someone, and I try not to do this, mm -hmm. but there's sometimes when I see certain things like um, videos out there where it's, you know, it's just kind of BS martial arts. That oh, does right. exist. Right, sure. Just like there are, play, I tell people this, like, 
I'm open to cross training. I would cross train with 90 something percent of people oh, for out sure. there. Yeah, but me too. even in the martial arts community, which is supposed to be about community and uh, honor and everything, it's like there are some people that I would not go to their gym. And I think that's probably the better way to describe it because it's not the art. Well, it's, it's not. It's probably yeah, it's legitimate. Humanity. It probably has a legitimate perspective on how some stuff work and probably is better at something than every other thing. But there are practitioners that are just uh, shallow. Well, know? yeah, even like, so Blake is, he's, he, he, too, so like, I look at it this way. I have my bite belt in judo. Um, I just got my bite belt in, uh, I'll say, Brazilian jiu jitsu, because that's what I was promoting. Right. But I hate even calling it that. Yeah. As someone who wrote my master's thesis on the topic that I just mentioned, Japanese jiu-jitsu, judo, and then oh, modern martial arts that came out of that, that tr that were reinvented off those traditions, right? Uh, do, especially during the Cold War, it's like I know too much about the history to be talking too much smack about anything, right? Sure. Uh, and it's people get real close-minded and like dude i'm gonna tell people right now like for example joe rogan will talk all sorts of smack about aikido argued with one of his guests one time and i'm just like dude i'm sitting in here in the studio right. watching moria yeshiba videos because he recorded everything yes, after world did. war ii for hours right and you will never do that and right. you'll close off to it and you know what it might not be be helping me but i picked up a couple of things of that, course you did and i Right. Here's the thing. It's all, even Aikido to me, is all jiu-jitsu. It, it, it is. It's all the same thing. I don't even like calling it, it Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I know. I'm I've you. never been to Brazil, right. and I will probably never go. What? Yeah, dude. You might go. I, I would, but here's the thing, man. It Like, uh, my judo sensei is going. They go every two years. Our team does. Mm -hmm. And um, he just bought his ticket, and it was $1,900. Oh, you know, so like that's let's let's say uh, maybe and then, you'll get sponsored. Well, I I could make it happen. Okay. You know, like dude, we're gonna go to Disney World or Disneyland. Right. I don't remember the one in Florida, but Cora is very excited. I'm I I got a Harry Potter wand. Yeah, I'm kind of excited about that. Oh, I'm yeah, gonna dress sure. up, and there's gonna be Star Wars dress up stuff too. Right, right. Uh, I never, I've never been, I'm not, I'm just like, but you know, I'm like, well, I would rather go to a widespread panic concert all right. or something. Well, that's you know? all right. I get where you're coming uh, from. So, but I'm not very place specific myself either. Yeah. So Cora, that's not the thing, but that, that we'll go do that for her, you know? Sure. And, but it's like, that's what we're going to do instead yeah, of, it. uh, go to Brazil. Of, yeah. And then here's another thing. The point I make to, to the people that go, they go and it probably does impact them, change them, influence them in some way. Of course, but in my so my, maybe, so does every experience that you're paying. We were talking about that at the coffee house the other it, day. Is it geographically? Is it location specific? I don't think so. I don't either. And you know, you know what? I also think though, and this is not. Um, don't want to sound. Um, and anytime you say something like, "I don't want to sound racist or bigoted," uh, it's like here's the thing. My friends go. Mm -hmm. And they go down there where these people do not speak English as a first language, and they're trying to translate and teach them these super, super high-minded concepts and these right. flashy techniques, which may work in sport or otherwise. And I think that there is a, a hitch in the assimilation of that, right? Like, well, yeah, I see there's, people there's that, a barrier. And, yeah. and if if you spent. Um, a substantial amount of time. Yeah, like if you Cobrinia, get, there, get embedded, spend a couple of years. Exactly. Sure. Yeah, I'm with There's you. a practitioner that did that, and I actually thought he was Brazilian. Oh, he's yeah. not. His name is Rubens. How many Cobrinia is Anna Charles. Brazilian? That's like more than a million, right? 
Brazilian. How, how many times? There's a funny meme out there. It's like, how many times does it take? Uh, do you have to tap to get your white belt? And it's like a Brazilian. One, one Brazilian nice. times. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Well, I, I think the point that uh, that you were getting at is that uh, there is such a thing as truth. I believe there is such a thing as truth. I think we're all groping at it, uh, and that. So if you accept that there's something true in martial arts, and I believe there are probably a few things that are true there, not the least of which is learning self-control, uh, learning how to manage things like fear, learning how to incorporate things like anger and assertiveness and put it under control, have it in balance, you know, yeah. not to ignore it and pretend like that's not part of you so that it explodes and you lose control. That's when you're dangerous. Uh, so there are lots, I think, of true things that there are that are true that you Here, seek after. Here's a, a like my coach, the guy that he trained with. I can only imagine this dude. Like I know little about him other than what, like the legends I've heard. But I mean, this guy just moved from California. Apparently, had been in Japan, but moved from California um, to Bryant, Arkansas, and opened up, I think, a liquor store and a and a gun store. Okay. So, but he started uh, training martial arts, maybe opened his own gym in the 70s or something. Uh, there's some information out there on him available. But um, <clears throat> just hearing uh, hearing those guys talk about him um, and some of the stuff he said, but they said he was always talking about these three concepts, fear, beauty, yeah, and pain. Yeah, yeah. You know, those so, are pretty primal things, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, they yeah. are. But like, so like, here's the thing, man. I did a private lesson in this particular style before um, we did our testings on uh, Saturday morning. We had fights that night and stuff. So like, I wake up, start off the day with some coffee and some getting my wrist jacked. Yeah, yeah. And um, that's the thing. It's like. You go in and you're like, man, I don't want to get wrist locked and it hurts super bad. You know it's going to. You're not. You're nervous about it. So you got to right. go through the David Brown with the leaf and the. You sure, know, that's and right. Then you're preparing like, yourself. Relax, right. and then that's it's right. like, okay, man, that is such a beautiful technique. It works. That's, and, and then yeah. it's like, oh, it's so painful. Right. And then the process, you know, it's, it's like he's always just kind of, he's like fear, beauty, and pain. And, and then he'll start, yeah. you know, he's got yeah. some great metaphors and analogies. Just listening to him talk about um, weeping and or weeping style. It's called that because if you snatch someone up, like the willow tree, it'll make like you some cry. of these wrist locks, right, like the right. way you're, the way you get in. Man, it's violent because they all translate into throws, yeah, of course off they balances do. Yes. and submissions. Well, yeah, the one is part of the other, but this is sort of the fundamental thing. I'm saying if there is such a thing as objective truth, which I think there is. Ah, uh, yeah. And there are legitimate avenues through which we can discover these things. You can talk about painting or music, something true about music, something true about dancing, something true about uh, conversing with someone, connecting your minds, and whatever mystery there is behind, I have an idea, therefore I bring air into my lungs, flex my diaphragm, force it through my vocal folds, rattle the atoms between me and you, and now you have that idea. Yeah, uh, one of my favorite quotes is... Uh, um uh, George Bernard Shaw. Yeah. Um, is a, okay. If uh, I have an apple and you have an apple and we switch apples, we each have one apple. Right. If I have an idea and you have an idea and we trade ideas, now we each have two ideas. Yeah. And that it is, I think it is something 
uh, you'll forgive me for saying this, I think it's something supernatural. Oh, yeah. It's something that just exceeds when you think of everything in terms of physics and chemistry. You cannot explain fundamental things, maybe the best things about life in the universe, which are you have a consciousness. That's yeah. more than an atom. You can't, you can't see a consciousness in a microscope, nor can you explain it by physics and chemistry. You, neither can you with language. Frankly, life itself is inexplicable on the basis of the mechanics alone. So, uh, not to lose my train of thought. No, I'm no, I'm terrible I mean, about no, this. This is, uh, this is what we're doing. Yeah, right. So, I think you're seeking truth uh, or some truths in terms of martial arts. And to say a priori or beforehand that I simply will not allow any truth from this vector or from you're choosing to be blind. So, you're going to say there's nothing that Aikido or anything that people who have practiced that have to teach me. Well, frankly, in my opinion, a person who says that is an idiot. Yeah. I just think it's stupid to say, I choose to be blind in these areas. Why not take what you can in, uh, prove it as best you can, and then internalize that? And you know what will happen is, and you've experienced this, I'm sure, now it synthesizes in you and becomes a new thing. So now you become a part of that body of information, and what I think happens is you approximate truth over time. Here's a, here's another thing that like so people get so fixated and focused on sport martial arts even mm -hmm. MMA will sure. say right? right so like I was just hearing Joe Rogan yesterday on his MMA show talk about hand wraps it it is almost impossible for example like I've in jiu-jitsu terms I've submitted four people on the ground with a wrist lock okay uh, I think they were all at purple belt okay. when I was purple belt. Yeah. So this yeah. has been a while back. I might have got one of them at brown belt. But uh, like wrapping the hands, like it basically, and it's like he's his point is, and I, I do a whole bunch of wrist exercises, and when I like teach a kickboxing class or a fitness kickboxing class, I'll have people work out their hands. We do so many push-ups. Like right. I have a bunch of exercises I do for my hands. Right. And um, so he talks about how wrapping uh, your hands and fighting with gloves on is not good for your hands. Right. He uh, he thinks it's that just people just like binding feet. People, yeah, yeah. He's like, what? Well, like he's that. like, you know, um, we take wrist locks off the table by doing this. Right. Uh, it, I mean, it's empirical proof. Like I've just been lecturing on the scientific revolution and enlightenment, which um, is. Uh, the thing is, is 10 years ago, within the last 10 years, I'd hear people say things like the spinning wheel kick is a mm. one in a million, one Maybe. in a million technique. Like Maybe you're like, right. Like, like, let's go watch all the all of those kicks that have happened in the UFC in the last two years. Oh, well, you know, okay, but you, tons of knockouts. Yeah. And here's but people my had never seen it. My sensei. And this is, again, a million years ago. This is the middle 70s to the early 80s is when I took martial arts. But he told me, he said, if I ever see you spin or jump and you mess up, I'm going to hurt you because you got no business doing that when something simpler and more direct. Was oh, I at totally your agree. Disposal. That's why I'm such a big fan of uh, Muay Thai. There's this uh, classic fight that they were ta also talking about. And I've seen it. There's it circulates viral on uh, the Internet all the time for now until Elon Musk buys Facebook and shuts it down. <laughs> Did you hear about that? Oh, Elon no. Musk is trying to and offered does he to have, buy Facebook. Does he have the wherewithal? Because I, I know, mean, what dude. would the evaluation be on Facebook? He took all of the uh, Tesla and SpaceX pages down last week off of social media. Interesting. Yeah, I might, dude. I'm kind of like advertising my business on there. So yeah, and, and my podcast. Hmm. Well, we're in a more rapidly changing landscape than we've ever been in. 
Yeah. So, I mean, adaptation and the ability to adapt is probably more important now than ever. I think, you know, you're a history buff. So uh, about the time of the Industrial Revolution, the pace of change I'm about to get into that. has geometrically increased and is still on that sort of curve, increasing oh, no. at an increasing What's rate. What's crazy, um, imagine just like, uh, so have you ever seen that movie, The Missing with Tommy Lee Jones? It's like a we Western movie. It's, I uh, may have. I it's like, uh, okay, so this girl, uh, okay, Kate Blanchett is in it, and her daughter gets kidnapped, and her grandpa has been, like, living with the Indians, and that's Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah. But, like, in the beginning of the movie, they uh, it shows a scene where they, like, take a picture, and it's, like, super, you know, just in there. And yeah. They take a picture of oh, this. Oh, the pictures uh, back then look serious. Oh, Those I people know, look like man. serial killers. So, but he takes a picture of this kind of like a, sort of a witch doctor type Indian that's the antagonist. And he's always, like, hanging these rattlesnakes in this tree wherever he goes. It's right. sort of freaky. But um, imagine going from there to this room. Imagine we uh, no. take the... No the, one would have believed it. Oh, man. Like, it's just be like, hey, uh, hold on. I'm going to take a picture with my phone here. See sure. how much better no, it look, developed right there. I'll tell you this way. Uh, I still remember when I was a kid. And I've always been interested in how stuff works. So at about age eight, I got fascinated by uh, the encyclopedias and just read the encyclopedias. We just, had a set oh, of Britannicas. Because uh, yeah, I yeah, wanted to too. know, like, what's the scope of information that's out there? And I want to learn about how stuff works. So... Uh, television and radio fascinated me. Broadcast it, is fascinating. It me hasn't right now. stopped yet because I don't know if people because it's normal. I don't know if people stop and think. You realize that you're taking these images and sounds, and you're just putting them into the air, and other people have equipment that can snatch that out of the air and bring. I mean, instantly. And all the way around the world, don't you see how miraculous that is? It still blows me away. So to think that people went from, well, you go back through recorded history. Men walked with their left foot and their right foot, rode on the backs of camel or beasts of burden. And maybe they could go, let's just say they could go 30 miles an hour on horseback. And that was about the max speed. That was true for about 4,000 years. Wild. Right. And that's like uh, really... So I start off my course with the Mongols. Oh, right. With Genghis Khan. Yeah. Um, and really, I probably shouldn't give as much time to it as I did, man. I went well, you tend to linger on things that yeah, you enjoy. You know, yeah. Plus which, you know, you can infer things from that. Oh, big because time. Because what you see is you, you see things that happen within, like, the expansion of the Ottoman Empire or how Alexander the Great expanded and created. All of those things share similarities. So if you know about that, you can sort of understand things about Napoleon Bonaparte or et cetera. The, what blows my mind is, uh, <clears throat> so we're talking about social media, the internet, new media. We'll just say new media. Yeah. The printing press. <clears throat> yeah. Like, okay, I, I, I've been talking about like the Reformation and stuff on the podcast. Fascinating topic. Never was I interested in the Reformation going through college for whatever reason. You really opened up a can of verms. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there, <laughs> Charles V. And that's no uh, theses. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so, but man, Sorry. okay, so 60 years earlier, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. it, it, <clears throat> we say 60, 100 years to be safe, but within the 100 years earlier, there were two instances where someone raised the same issues with the Catholic Church, sure. and they were put to death. Right. You know why? No, no ability to spread information. Martin Luther had a political cartoonist yeah. on staff. Right. 
You know, that's the same thing Voltaire. I, I had a PowerPoint this morning, and I, we talked about um, – and you and I were talk, talking about uh, the Marquis de Sade the other yeah, day, right? Yeah. So Voltaire is commenting on this French Protestant who was accused of murdering his own son. Mm -hmm. They, like, sped him through, tortured him twice, and then executed him. Okay. Right? right. And um, so he starts commentating on this, starts writing about it, does a, does this little um, sort, of a, a sort of a drawing and mm -hmm. uh, starts getting all these arguments from these other enlightenment era, uh, philosophes and basically raises all this awareness and gets that ruling overturned, gets it right. called out for what it is, right. religious persecution. And then sure. he gets, uh, that guy's family gets paid a stipend by, uh, uh, Louis the, uh, sixth, uh, uh, 14th, 14th. 14th. Yeah, the son. So, um, but that was, uh, that you see the, um, you see this, picture like some French soldiers standing around and then this guy getting broke on the wheel yeah and I was making a joke I was like yeah I got this yoga wheel at my house I was doing this this morning but without the ropes um oh, goodness. and uh they, but I was like were you a heretic did you find uh, out I was not a heretic, okay very good but that's what see what uh that's what I was talking about um how uh Jews and um like is like one of the one of the Enlightenment era philosophers was like uh, he wrote this thing. Uh, he had a character that raised his daughter to be uh, Christian, Judaic, and Islamic, like all three religions. All right. and like that was like a, a a way a mode of thinking back then. But Voltaire, like one of the things he did is he put this friar in this painting, like waving a like had his cross. You know, it's yeah. just like it, imagine when you couldn't like infer that. Like sure. you couldn't like there, well, there's no the there's no way to get these pamphlets out and mass yeah mass I understand printing. yeah that's something that I think Alexander Solzhenitsyn probably proved in this era more than anyone else. Think of the power behind the Iron Curtain. Think of the hundred million estimated plus dead bodies that are stacked up at the feet of Stalin, based mm. on starving entire villages. But that's just a statistic. It is. It is. See, have you heard that Stalin quote? Oh, he's like no, one death. One death's a tragedy. That's right. A million, a million deaths is a, is a statistic. And he's correct because we have, we lack somehow the faculty to uh, apprehend massive numbers. So yeah, it costs five dollars. I understand that. It costs a billion dollars. I don't have a way to understand. That's that. uh, so. These Enlightenment, like Voltaire, for example, he was um, his shtick was making comparisons. Sure. You know, and I think we're, that is what we're I... We're hardwired for that. Yeah. I, and every every uh, philosopher had, like, a different approach. Sure. Like, David Hume was a skeptic. Socratic method is basically that. You're looking at uh, using parallels in order to infer truths. And that our mind is built for comparison. I mean, that's just a physiological what, fact. Let me ask you what you think about this All along that mode of thinking. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't want to get off into like mind control or anything, but are that, you are you? Am I controlling your mind? I don't know. I don't know. Are my, you controlling my mind? I'm not. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, so that would be funny because it would still be us. It'd be a pointless exercise because well, you'd say what I want. So and I then witness. I witness testimony, for example. Sure, it's real shaky. Like let's say yeah. you witnessed a traumatic event. Right. They like, um, I, and I forget the exact uh, word for like what that, there's like a term for how it influence how your memory memory can be influenced. Right. 
to where it's like you don't really remember things, so you're subjective to people kind of implanting thoughts in your head in a way, yeah. which then you will start like, man, I messed something up the other day, and I'm like totally, I'm just going to tell everybody right now. Uh-oh. I was telling people that somebody told me, I, or I just like inverted it in my head, confagulated right. it, that Chris Cornell had a 12-octave vocal range. Oh, wow. Which the world record is eight, and right. he has a four. So I so either in conflated your head, was it. Was it just the evens? Were you doing? I think the, I conflated I it because twelve, uh, twelve uh, notes in an octave. Right, you're going and then four, four eight, is twelve. A, yeah, four. Sure. Is a, so yeah. I was like, man, did I mess that up? Like what? And then I repeated it to like a group of people. Right, right. And then I feel like such. But a, that's not somebody monkering. I, I think looking at it in that sense is to misunderstand memory memory is not actually a set of hard facts memory is a very few hard facts that you retain and then you use your active working mind to build a story around those facts that make sense of them all that's how our memory works in general so that uh, when you're recalling an event you let's just say that you have four snapshots well, then you look at those in your brain, and your brain says, okay, how do we make sense of these four snapshots? And that's how you put it together. But uh, I will say in terms of eyewitness testimony, it is unreliable, at least in the sense that— Oh, yeah, you had to have tons of experience with that uh, working a little, doing reporting. Uh, a little bit, not so much. I've looked at it more in the evidentiary sense. I was interested in law when I went through business school and had a lot of law courses. We looked at that. and it used I'm, to be all they would teach, law and history. Well, I, I had cool classes. Philosophy. I had, yeah, loved my philosophy, Me loved too. my philosophy professor. Where'd you go to school? I went to Auburn University at Montgomery, oh. which was a small... Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Is that where you were uh, born and raised? I was born in Birmingham, Alabama. Wow. Yeah, right. And I lived there for six years, moved to Montgomery, Alabama. What which year is, was this? I was born in 70, uh, moved from Birmingham in 76, and then I moved from Montgomery in 2008 to come here. So that's where I've lived. But Dude, it's crazy. When I hear somebody born in 1970, I do not think they're 48 years old in my head. Right, right. Well, I don't, I don't know. Uh, some, some parts that means my dad's 58. Yeah, yeah. And I don't like it, so that's kind of a weird thing for yeah, me. Yeah, I think it's good to acknowledge that humans have a shelf life. So I, it doesn't bother me to think to myself, I'm 48, so if things go well, I have... Uh, a couple more decades and maybe some change to do what I want to do. I'll just say this. I hope it doesn't embarrass you. But so in your bathroom, it says someday I'm going to change the world. So I would modify that and I would just say today I'm going to change the world. Living in the moment, man. Well, I, I am changing the world. That's kind of my point. If your goal is to change the world, you are doing it. Right. But, well, then, yeah, like uh, I'm, I'm again ripping like a. Uh, Man, there was an episode uh, yesterday on Joe Rogan where he went off into some super deep stuff, and they were talking about that. They're like, just live in the moment. He's like, sure. uh, every, he he was saying him and Eddie Bravo, the guy who was on there, like we all thought we, we like we thought we were gonna make it, right? And as soon as we stopped thinking we were gonna make it, and I was like, man, that's so good because like. I've I kind of felt that way, and then I was just right. like, man, I'm just gonna do me. I'm going to do these podcasts. I'm going to do these videos on my YouTube. And I'm going right. to tell you, like, in all, all walks of life, I've had criticism on anything I'm doing, whether it's the of gym, right. whether it's my personal martial arts journey, out, this podcast. You should check out, by the podcast. way, Daring Greatly, Brene Brown. Daring Greatly. What's uh, It's a book. 
and okay. it's fantastic. I won't give away the, the root of it, but the quote, she, she pulls that title from a quote from Teddy Roosevelt, one of his public speeches. So he's saying, it's not the critic who matters. There are plenty of people, when you step into the ring... Him. Oh yeah, I've heard. I've it's heard that. It's the metaphor yes. of the matador, who's got the courage to stand in front of that great stampeding beast that you know could kill you, and yeah, you'll probably make a, a few mistakes while you do it, and people will criticize you, but they're not standing in the ring. It's not the critic who matters; it's the one who dares. So that's where she gets the title. Yeah, great. I tell my fighters pretty much the same thing. Well, I think it's a metaphor, isn't it, for life? Mm-hmm. Isn't it? I, I mean, it is. It is, and you know you. So many people get paralyzed by like, um, like a fear of putting themselves out there. Yeah. And uh, like, so. What's the number one fear? Failure. No, it's not. Although oh, oh, it's, okay. it's tied up in that. So I'm not, yeah. I don't mean. Yeah, I, I just, just said that because like a lot of people I know, like in the long lines of what I'm talking about, right. they're like, I could just fail. So I'll never do it. What you're saying is probably deeper than what I'm saying. The number one reported fear is public speaking. The oh, reason yeah. for that yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is failure. You don't want to feel like, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. The number two, death. Yeah. So apparently it's better to be at your own to funeral than living. to have to speak at someone else's. Yeah, which is crazy, but it sort of it makes the point. It's I'll go I'll circle back if you don't mind to Solzhenitsyn because you were bringing up Gutenberg and the printing press and the power that that brought so that an individual person who would have been powerless before the uh the behemoth that was the Catholic Church, which was some kind of combination between a church and a state. I mean, it wasn't solely one thing or the other they were frankly the power behind the throne in a lot of places and so how do you break something like that if it's a house and you'll pardon me for bringing in the title of the show but what if it's a house of lies how do you bring that down well it turns out the most powerful thing on the planet is the truth so here's what happened when uh when he decided to nail those theses to uh, the door at verms uh the printing press made every one of these, they were intended to purify that church. That was what Luther wanted to do. I mean, he was devoted to the Catholic Church. He just saw that there were errors, and he was hoping to bring reform. Yeah. However, um, the, all with all of that massive power and influence, all of the money, all the military might the Catholic Church possessed, uh, they could not withstand the truth uh being widely spread it 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 brought down it broke their power and influence not all together of course they're still around but what i'm saying is that makes one man a very powerful force and you could say it's very much the same thing i would say with what happened with jesus and christianity and rome because uh when christianity began after jesus and his disciples and it was disseminated and it was very similar in that uh, the road system had to exist in Europe, and, and there had to be a common language, which was the language of commerce, uh, in order for that gospel to spread so quickly, to change things. And so it did in his time. And now, uh, as uh, Rome, which was a monster of an empire, was more or less brought down by the influence of Christianity. Yeah. So it's an amazing thing, and that's kind of where I wanted to tie that in with Solzhenitsyn, because that's what he said. I used to think that uh, the atomic bomb was the most uh, powerful weapon in the world. It's not. It's the truth. 
he wrote the Gulag Archipelago. Yeah, did, so uh, Michael has been reading that, correct? Yeah. Is, did you turn him on to it? Uh, no. Because he's, he's, see, he's talked to me about it several he times. He turned me on to Jordan Peterson, whom I'd never heard of, yeah, because yeah, yeah. Peterson was opposing Bill C-16 up in Canada, which was... I talked about Jordan Peterson in my class this morning. Well, it's topical. I mean, it, there's hard to think of something that matters in life that he doesn't address, you know? And ordinarily, it's practical, which I appreciate. I know you're a, an intellectual guy, and you enjoy academia, and I'm that way. But there's a danger, and I see it way too often. People who enjoy ideas, sometimes they get locked into them, and they're no practical good in life. Like, okay, great, you can figure out how the atom works. Would you please figure out how to tie your shoes and take a bath and, you know, things that matter in life? So one of the things I like about Peterson is that he's very pragmatic. Yeah, so it's I totally it's never agree. just theoretical for him. He's got great analysis, and he'll talk about theories that may be very ethereal, uh, but he'll always bring it down to a place where the rubber meets the road. You know, it's wild. Um, he was saying that he's figured out a way to monetize both being and commentating on social justice warriors. Right. Because really he's like, he is like a social justice crusader in a way. I, I mean, not in the, like, not in the traditional sense of it. Because I was thinking about it, I was like, well, he said, he's like, I've figured out how to, you know, take these social justice warriors that are, you know, conflating all this stuff and sure. sort of comment on that. And here's my audience, 65,000 people or something like that. Right. Uh, and, you know, and he come on to these podcasts, Jocko and Joe Rogan, and I mean, he's done all these uh, appearances yeah. and interviews and debated with people, and he just right. stays so calm and cool and collective. But really, um, he is bringing about some level of social justice, in my view. Ex uh, define, if you don't mind, what social justice is when you're saying he's bringing social okay, justice. Okay, so and maybe that's based on my subjective reality, but here's the thing, like... Um, I do not agree. I, I am way more of a proponent of free speech, and yeah, sure. I do not agree that Jordan Peterson in any forum saying that he does not want to recognize the gender pronoun Zare is a state-mandated, I am forced to sure. call you that, right. when uh, that is just maybe uh, it's a little too far out for me. Like, I can't get behind that at all. You can call me a conservative or whatever, but here's the thing is I feel like, the vast majority of people are not going to fall in line with that right. on this planet. Right. Like that is a crazy well, concept and he's just yeah, commenting on it. Right, so right. For, well, in my he, view, he's bringing about a level well, of social here's something justice. Interesting as the Gutenberg and the printing press was to uh, toppling the oppressive tyranny that was the Catholic church in the day. So now is social media and this sort of webcasting that we're doing now to empower any individual who has some truth to expound and share, uh, which, frankly, uh, lies cannot withstand. So if there's anything that's built on a lie, it will crumble under the force of the truth. And I will bring up uh, Mahatma Gandhi bringing down India. I will bring up uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, helping to uh, vastly improve uh, civil rights on behalf of black people. And that's near and dear to my heart that's why I was, I was asking, I was born yeah. in Birmingham and then I lived in Montgomery so I've studied yeah. Martin Luther King Jr. and I've been to his house where he used to live and we have a museum I've been there I used to teach my students when I taught literature and composition uh, we memorized his speeches and we studied letter from a Birmingham jail uh, so l you see what's happening here with these people that 
they're broadcasting truth and that it's bringing down lies and anyone who trades in lies. So what I'm getting at is that uh, so if a person is willing to speak truth to power, it may well, as in most of the cases that I just mentioned, it may well end up in personal injury or death. Now, that's true. Or getting your YouTube channel like banned. Because sure. I know Jordan Peterson's been through that. Sure. Um, Prager University as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's um, that's just like these, okay, so like Voltaire, we've, we've got on him. Right. And many of these, uh, these Enlightenment thinkers were a Martin Luther exiled excommunicated for commenting on these ideas, which we now find, um, right. You know, it's like, no, that's, that's the way we're glad that happened. Of course. And and most people that know the story would, and, uh, would be an R, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the way it is. So in the case of something like, I'll just say, cause you use the term social justice and, uh, I don't like the term. I don't and either because I don't why. think about it. I don't it think is... justice is based on your people group. I think one people groups are relatively arbitrary. And if it's a mi- let's say it's a minority people group, so the majority is like, well, we never want to give the minority right. what they want. And the right. mi- so like it kind of seems like, as I'm hearing in the commentary of the ba- of the backdrop of society right now, right, you would call these social justice warriors like uh, these people that are. The minorities that are campaigning for a lot of things that the majority of people seem to not get along with. Like, here's something that blows my mind. There's, you can go to Facebook on your uh, phone, go to settings, account settings, ads, personal information, and then there's something else you go to for mm-hmm. personal information. Mm-hmm. And Facebook has assigned your political viewpoint. Oh, I'm sure of that. I screenshotted it. Oh, wow. I don't know if you knew this, but I'm a conservative. All right. Uh, Let me say this just for people who are listening. I really belong in both camps. I am a liberal and I'm a conservative. So uh, conservatives, wow. I'm sure I would be conservative based on the things that I've posted. You have this preference. Here's what it says. Um, You have this preference because we think it may be relevant to you. Uh, you based on what you do on Facebook. You know that's not why. Well, here's the thing. But you know I mean, let's say why. if it was like you're tagged. You know what? That's the equivalent, in my opinion. That freaks me out. Well, it freaks me out too. We still use it. I'm just not going to be afraid of it. Because look, I'll give you another example. I'm a Christian, so I study the Bible. And one thing that I've noticed is uh, Jesus, when he was called the task, which happened to him because the power structure that was there, the uh, the Sanhedrin was what they were called. The Pharisees were a prominent sect in that group. They called him, and he said, look, I didn't do anything in a corner. You want to know what I taught? Ask the people I was talking to. So I do, and he, of course he recognized that was going to get him killed. I mean, he talked about it before it happened. He knew it was going to happen. So I don't know that that will happen to you or to me, uh, but I'm willing to face that. Because yeah. if you're going to see things rationally, if you're going to have your eyes open, then you have to realize, yeah, there's danger in saying things that are true. That's, it's dangerous, and it could be painful and costly. But it's more dangerous not to. How do you think? I'll, I went to Washington, D.C., and I visited the Holocaust Museum. Oh, man. Yeah. It hit me so hard. It, it literally, viscerally, physically uh, hit me. I can't. I can only imagine. Like, I mean, just I've done a lot of research on the Holocaust. I've film professors talking about it. I've d- done presentations on the camps and right. European geography right. and collective memory of. And oh man, here's the thing. I tried to hold my composure because uh, 
I try to be uh, just under control. I don't want to be too buttoned up, but I also don't want to be all over the mat. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I'm trying to keep good balance and I'm being deeply moved because what's happening is this isn't a story anymore. It's not a statistic. These are people and you're seeing evidence. So I went through one of the train cars. They had one of those cattle cars where they had stacked people in, you know, if they died, they would not fall over. They were just like sardines in there. And I was, I was able to hold it together. I kind of intentionally let the group ahead of me get some space because I, I felt like I wanted some space. You know, I, I, almost as if the physical space would give me a little space to feel and think, maybe. So I get to this place, and look, all it is is shoes. It's just shoes, man. It's a pile of shoes. And I'm saying it's two stories high of shoes. And this is what hits me. It hits me that Hitler and his regime... Just they incinerated the people, but not the shoes. The shoes were valuable. We need to keep the shoes. That's yeah. mind blowing. Well, that's a statement. So you get to the end of it, and there's a couple of quotes. One is all it takes for evil to thrive is for good men to do nothing. See, that's powerful. That goes to the cost of not saying anything. So I met so many Nazis uh, I've read. It's just like, uh, well, it was either in Enlightenment thinkers, too. There were several cautious ones sure. that would uh, release works anonymously yeah. or would yeah. dislike, you know, um, Erasmus. Yeah. Uh, he's like, yeah, I'm going to go for reforms from within the church. You shouldn't leave the church. Stay right. in the church. We'll fix it. Sure. Uh, and I think that, look, just to be fair, that's a rational position at the beginning. Yeah. It's not smart to say, look, this wheel isn't turning well, therefore let's reinvent it. The first step ought to be the, the, the least effective step you can take. I mean, I'm saying the, the least uh, radical step that might affect a positive change. That's where you start. But after you have taken the, the progress of this step, this step, this step, and it's not working, then half the time for half measures is over. And you see that over and over again. I mean, when we declared our independence from England, it said basically this is because of repeated intolerable usurpations of what we believe are our God-given rights. So we tried. We tried to talk to you. We sent emissaries. We attempted to have our voice heard. But here's the problem. Not only did you not hear us, but you made things worse. So now you've crossed the line. We cannot attempt half measures anymore. We are going to have to demonstrate to you that uh, you cannot just push us around and treat us as chattel or property anymore, and thus the American Revolution. And so I think it's, it's right to be uh, wisely cautious because it is expensive and possibly deadly uh, to stand up in the face of tyranny. And history just teaches us that. Anyone with a cursory knowledge of history, Definitely. as it's written, will understand that. And again, the, of the pantheon that I listed, uh, you know, Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr., and you can just pick people who've been lightning rods for uh, standing up to tyranny. A lot of them do die. So you have to be prepared for that. But look, what happened in Hitler's Germany could not have happened if people, rather than being silent, stood up, yeah. you know, that other saying that I was saying was there was, you know, they came for the uh, the Poles, and I didn't say anything because I wasn't Polish. 
And then uh, they came for the yeah. Jews, and then I didn't say anything because I wasn't a Jew. But in the end, they came for me, and there was nobody left to speak for me. And so that's one of the things I think that Jordan Peterson gets right is that, look, recognize, yeah, you should have your eyes wide open and know that if a thing is tyrannical or if a thing is false and wrong, that it is costly to stand up. And you may well pay a price for it, but make no mistake, you'll, you'll pay a bigger price for being silent. So I think that's enough motivation for me. I don't want to be crazy. But, for instance, uh, I mean, we've just had some terrible tragedies in terms of uh, school shootings. Man, and you mentioned those shoes. I don't know. Did you see um, all the shoes they put on the White House lawn? No. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it was a pair of shoes for every kid that had been killed in a school shooting Mm -hmm. or what. But uh, I'll tell you the most disturbing thing that um, I saw and heard people talk about too, and I don't know if the image I saw was even the actual image, but uh, and it might have been a video, but here was the thing: it was the Parkland school shooting, right? And it was in the hallway, and they were like escorting some kids out and like trying to get them not to look at this blood smeared on the floor, but right. next to that blood was a shoe. And the kid got shot out of a shoe, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, that just that makes it real. It's yeah. not a story. Yeah, I know. That was uh, some powerful imagery. And when I saw those shoes on the White House lawn and man, yeah. I am more on uh, the other side of that argument as most people are uh, in terms as I think. Uh, I don't know if you're a concealed carry holder, but I know that everybody we are both friends <laughs> with, myself right, included, yeah. is. I'm getting recertified well, on Saturday. Yeah, yeah. I'll uh, I'll give you a short history on me. So uh, I was raised by a Marine, my uncle. Uh, I had my first pistol at seven years old. It was a nine millimeter uh, uh, Browning. And I knew how to field strip it. I was an expert shot. Uh, by the time I was old enough to get a permit, I had one. I always had a pistol on my person at all times. Uh, now, since I injured my hand... Dude, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So this what happened, happened in 2000. Uh, I put myself through college when I went working in a machine shop. Oh, man. And so uh, I was getting my uh, management and economics uh, degrees and uh, I had just graduated in May and I think this was June we had a big job come through and we were just building rollers that's all uh, and I think it was a Friday we were wrapping up the order of these thousands of rollers that we'd been assembling and we'd been using what's called a hydraulic ram yeah. to assemble uh-huh. them because the fit was just that tight which it needed to be uh, so we didn't build in any real safety measures into the mechanism One guy threw the switch. The other guy put the parts in, took the parts out. So after lunch, we just went back to wrap it up. It was going to be a pretty pretty easy day. And I had reached in to grab a finished part, but the guy that was working the switch thought that we needed to hit it again because we'd had to do that a few times. So he just happened to hit the switch, and it crushed, uh, crushed my hand. You Man, know. How, how's uh, your nerves and everything and the rest here? You got. I do so well. Uh, no, dude, I wouldn't even have noticed, and I, I kind of wondered if it was even uh, genetic or something. Because oh, right, when you right. did that, I was like, yeah, you but then I could see, I was like, well, no, stuff. you don't even have a knuckle, do you? No, well, the somewhat. I guess it's still in there, yeah. Wow. Well, yeah, it was a very serious injury, but uh, fortunately, shock kept me from being in too much pain. Uh, I had a co-worker drive me to the ER. There wasn't a lot of blood. I guess the, the heat and the pressure just kind of cauterized it. 
as it happened. Uh, I had a super good surgeon who took care of me. He was better than the on-call guy. The on-call guy had a surgery, so I got this guy, and he was better. Uh, and then it was about a year of rehab, uh, which is probably part of the reason that I am working on being a physical therapist because physical therapy has really oh, changed man. my life, you know. Uh, but so the lo- that's a whole lot I'd, to tell you just to say uh, I'm not proficient with firearms anymore because I can't operate oh, my man. right hand very good. Now, I can shoot, I can put a six-inch group at 50 feet with my left hand. That's impressive. But I haven't practiced yeah. what, what I did, who knows, uh, 50,000 times. I used to shoot about 1,000 rounds every week on Fridays. I'd go shooting. I made my own uh, bullets. Can't you know. do that on YouTube. You can't tell people, they, or no, you can't. You can't. You can't, um, you can't do videos oh. teaching people how to um, do uh, reloads. I think we should remove forks also uh, because there's so many obese people that are dying, and we all know. Are that you making a comparison, Voltaire? I don't know. <laughs> you see, I I think that that's kind of what I wanted to say about that and speaking the truth uh, because. Uh, Let's just see where the evidence points. One of the first pieces I did when I went to work at River Valley Leader was about gun control. It was a hot topic at the time. In fact, in Clarksville. uh, That's where I'm from. Oh, wow. Okay, so the superintendent is an extremely sharp guy, very sharp. His solution to the school violence and protecting students, as he liked to put it, and I think he's right, uh, when seconds count, the police are only minutes away. Yeah, and dude, I'm telling you right now, um, school resource officers, in my opinion, are kind of a joke. In Russellville, Pope County, for example, uh, one of my students was a resource officer for a while, and he had to handle like four schools yeah. in a day. It, well, he had to go here. It's too much. I it, mean, it was. Honestly, and man, yeah. the the resource officers we had when I was there, it's like one person for the for the whole all the schools in right. in that uh district it would be like and, having four officers on the street for russellville and i, I man i honestly it would not be i've talked approach. in length with many people the only thing i kind of like uh that i've heard is uh somewhat of an idea of having not uh like a, a, an armed security staff and i don't sure. even necessarily think that I think you could be a teacher and be on that staff, but why not? You're the, you know, yes. And then like I like so like Clarksville, you mentioned they're like one of the only schools in the country that arms their teachers. He did it. I don't know if he was the first, but he was the first one I ever heard of, and I couldn't find anybody else. Well, this, see, my old football coaches are uh, like Shane Dugan um, right. is one of my old football coaches. They have an article out about he's the uh, I guess he's the principal now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the principal that was there when I was there is the assistant superintendent, Stephen Wyatt. Yeah. Uh, and then, so like all my old football coaches are like administrators now, uh, the right. dean of students, athletic director, principal. Right. And it's so, so like when I go back and give talks or, or whatever, it's, uh, it's interesting um, chatting with them about things. So uh, the point here, especially to connect it with the power that truth has over lies. So I understand the motivation of a person who would say, let's make tighter gun controls because we want less gun violence. We share that goal. I get that. I also want less gun violence. Me too. In fact, I want fewer suicides too. I do too. I I feel silly for saying the phrase gun violence. I want less 
violence. I want fewer personal attacks. I want less murder. Well, and, I mean, but you're on point. Like why why I said suicides is because something like eighty percent of the gun death statistics are suicide. Yeah, yeah, I know. And well, so uh, in doing this research, and one of the first pieces that I wrote was about gun control and. I was keeping an open mind because, honestly, uh, I try as much as possible not to bring my biases in. My goal is, in this case, to reduce the amount of violence and to maximize the amount of freedom that people have. That's the goal. We all share it. That's what we're aiming at. So look at what happens, and this is what I did. I said, well, this apparently it's not just a theory. We can actually check places where they've instituted such laws. It turns out Washington, D.C. passed this kind of law where there were no guns inside the city. You weren't permitted to carry. Yeah, with New York City the same way. New York did the same thing. Chicago did the same thing. The whole nation of Australia did the same thing. So guess what? I don't have to wonder what would happen? I can actually look. Let's take it out of the realm of the theoretical. Let's put it in the actual. Let's look at the laboratory results. In every case, not in some, in every single case where they took the guns away and made the laws much stricter about obtaining and carrying them, violent crime went up. Especially in Chicago. Now, here's an irony. Yeah, Chicago. I and mean, I'm sure New York, too. I just haven't looked at it, the stats. It, look, it did. In everyone, it's not... It's not just... Everybody always likes to get on that Australia argument. I don't know why. I don't well, really know the what, story other than they did they this. had a They had a mass shooting. They decided to do something about it. What they decided to do was to uh, have a gun buyback program where you voluntarily brought your arms in and they would pay you for them and then they destroyed them. As a result, violent crime has gone up dramatically. So... The point is, is that if your goal is to reduce the amount of violent crime that people suffer from, clearly you would not espouse tighter gun controls. And then you have to think about things like, well, see, that's where the evidence points. That's why I care about it. Uh, like, uh, on the other hand, take a country like Switzerland. In Switzerland, not only do they, they don't employ tight gun controls, they require every citizen to have a gun. They have the least violent crime in the world. Yeah. Now that is I have heard that. That's exactly what the founders had in mind here in this country. When they put it in as an amendment to our Constitution, the guarantee that we as individuals would have the right to keep, that means possess, and bear, that means to carry on our person arms, in order that we didn't suffer from government tyranny, you know. And also, since it's already been cited, that uh, our God-given right, not given by a government, our God-given right is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, life is first in that, all right? And that's in order to protect your life, they say, that's, that's why you have this right to carry a firearm. They want you to be able to do that. So, interestingly, at the time when we were founded, almost every kid took a gun to school. My dad killed a skunk at school when he was like 17 years old because sure. the teacher asked him to. Well, right. Well, I mean, I want to go back to the very beginning and just show there were no school shootings. Man, The guns yeah. did not cause kids to shoot other kids. Now, it's true. Like when your dad, he's a little older than me. He's about 10 years old. This would have been like 1976. Okay. So, yeah, when I went to high school, which for me was uh, 1984 through 1988, 
I think, if I'm getting it. I know I graduated in 88. I just can't remember. His, I think, was like 75 through 78 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, we all had guns school. in our gun racks in our pickup trucks when we went to school. Yeah. Everybody had guns. There were no shootings. So, I mean, if you think that reducing the number of guns would reduce the number of innocent people who were hurt by them, you have no evidence on which to base that opinion. That is why I don't agree with it. And I will continue to say that truth. Why? Because I actually do care whether people get hurt by yes, guns. Yes, I, I know. It's man, it is such a. I have a lot of it, and I've uh, like we did a whole, uh, I guess, said a whole clip, and then a, even an episode on the podcast with a political scientist yeah. on these issues. Right. Uh, and uh, Michael and I, when we did our podcast, we talked pretty heavily about the Parkland school shooting sure. that just happened. Right. And um, it's so I'm I'm 100 percent with everything you're saying. Yeah. And then too, it's just so uh, it's so difficult to uh, try and expound on a solution. When I found out that a lot of the states don't report to like federal, like the federal entities that run the background checks on like mental health and those, like that was a that was a concern for me. Um, The fact that I mean I think like stuff like that, and then here's another thing I'm for. Like you said, you did your due diligence, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you right now, I have not recently in terms like I've been so busy and I've gone on the weekends, I haven't shot a. Oh, magazine right. through right. either one of my handguns. Are you out of the city limits here? Yes. Yeah. But so I've got. I've I saw got, a place yeah. across the street. Look like. Yeah, I could. And man, like um, McMillan, my judo sensei, and uh, he's chief of campus police at Tech. Yeah. He uh, he's concealed carry instructor and does uh, he has a he has a range set up that he get uh, it's like on family land or something. Right. I don't or he maybe even bought land and set it up, but. Anyway, it's uh, like I I could go do it. I just like I'm I'm busy and I don't. But like these people will go and get their their concealed carry, or they will own guns and buy guns and possess guns, and then never train with them. And while you are not that, no, or, you thousands know, or, and thousands of hours, exactly you know. right. And and but for me, it was. I did it before I knew it. This I have to thank my uncle for this. Uh, he didn't know a lot about kids, and honestly, I was his sister's kid, so it's not like he had to help raise me. He just chose to do it. It was a sacrifice on his part. So as a Marine, he passed on to me the things that mattered to him. So I learned to work out early. I got my first set of weights I must have been five years old. Superstar Orbitrons made by Diversified Product. Wow. You know, with the plastic and inside is concrete. Yeah, dude, yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah. I, I did my bench presses on the floor. You know, they st- my elbows would stop. And I love those things. So I, I learned that. I learned uh, the speed bag because he had a speed bag and a heavy bag in the garage. And then he had a, a weight bench and some weights and stuff. And I followed him around as a kid does. And I remember, and this will circle us all the way back to the very beginning, uh, I remember the sound of him hitting that speed bag. It was hypnotic to me. I was fascinated. Rhythm is is definitely fascinating. I talk. It, that's probably one of the rhythm and reaction time are two of the probably the most high minded concepts that I have to talk to people about in striking. How do you explain reaction time? Because when you train, your reaction time improves, right? Yes. What's it happening? Does. There? Um, 
many things. Uh, reaction time could be used as uh, like an attacker counter in my view, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, and then too, I think about my reaction time, like how you're affecting me and then how I affect your how reaction time. How does one improve their reaction time? You do it through repetition. Rep yeah. Repetition, yeah. Like here's uh here's one thing. Uh, it's it seems kind of uh maybe uh hokey to do, but okay. So have you ever seen the Count of Monte Cristo with Jim Caviezel? Yes, it's been a long time so though. Good, dude. Yeah, so good. We talk about I, the look, French Revolution. I think I told you at eight. I read the encyclopedias, so I read all of the great I, books. I, I lectured on the encyclopedia from the Enlightenment this morning from Dennis Diderot. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, and it was a it was an amalgamated work. 71,000 articles then oh, uh, whenever it was 17 I can't remember the date yeah. that publication yeah. but um, uh, I got distracted on that what was it well we were talking about reaction time you brought up okay, okay. Monte Cristo so, uh, so in that movie um, there's this like drip in the cell and he goes and he has he has him over there and he's going right and he it keeps he's <laughs> right right so um i've seen a drill like that for example with a jump rope okay you get somebody jumping rope and mm -hmm. you go <laughs> oh right you're getting your hand in and out before so that to me is my re reaction yes, so like it is. It action is. it's also your rhythm and they it's uh, also your rhythm it is it cuz you're timing that you're figuring out what are the regularities and then you're figuring out how can i blend into that rhythm so that it works exactly so like i uh, uh like you get two people holding a big jump rope for you and sure. you go and get in it you're like yeah that's that's along that's the same what lines I think. yeah that's that's kind of the point i was trying to make about uh, martial arts being a search for truth it is uh similar it's like a dance my sensei used to tell me that when a person moves, they're opening and closing doors. There are areas that are protected, and there are areas that are less protected. The pr you know where the attack is likely to come from. You also know where you should attack because you know where they're weak. And you just should read the fluctuations in that. So in a very real sense, it gets to be like a dance, and you, you start to understand why, regardless of fighting style, whether you're talking about Muay Thai or if you're watching two American boxers box, you see it. It is a dance. People, you watch them. They start to sync up. If you cut out all the commentary and put on the correct music and didn't tell somebody what was going on, they would think it was dancing, you know. Uh, so I'll just try to say the thing that occurred to me about reaction time is that the way that uh, that we form reactions is that a stimulus is introduced and then uh, our nerves from usually our extremities send that message up to our brain. Our brain then processes it, makes a decision, and then shoots that decision back down to the extremity. Now, that takes a while. Yes. So here's what happens when you train. You actually build, you hardwire in a response. So the decision time is out of it. There's uh well, so like if I'm, for example, uh, this is a good, uh, so there's a guy in the UFC right now named Sage Northcutt. He looks like Zach Morris and Ivan Drago. Oh, that's, from, that's Adam, awesome. Rungen. I mean, it's like the perfect. Yeah. He just looks great. Yeah. <laughs> so he's a specimen. Is there a guy that looks like Screech in there? Because that would be awesome. That would be good too. <laughs> but before he made it to the UFC, I think he was fighting on Legacy, which Cora's actually fought on. Mm -hmm. And, um. This dude's super explosive, came up with a, a traditional martial arts background, did like commas and all this oh, point right. sparring and katas and stuff. But he has also trained um, 
and fought in MMA and, yeah, right. and and had this like Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, this other guy is his traditional background. He's coming in and doing things like side stance stuff and right. in and out and it's just a different style, but it's effective. Yeah. Right. But uh so this Sage Northcut guy kicks a dude mm-hmm. and that guy's like, Oh, you kicked me. And while he is addressing that that just happened, he gets hit like three more yes. times. But that first kick was so well planned, set up, and went right. so fast sure. that he was like, "Oh, what's going on over here? Oh, right. oh, 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 wait, it's over here." This is again one of the reasons I don't think you need to get trapped in your thinking, because we should take advantage of crystallized intelligence. You know, there are two sides to intelligence. There's your fluid intelligence, and there's crystallized intelligence. Crystallized intelligence is that body of information which you've already understood, assimilated, and you've uh, taxonomized, you've put it into its categories. It's ready to go. That goes with you. Uh, think of that as your storehouse of knowledge, right? Fluid intelligence is that, uh, maybe you would call that your uh, random access memory, your RAM. So that is what you gather the new information with and how you categorize it and get stuff from that's in front of you. That's a thinking about it. Well, I mean, I'm just groping at things, but that's the idea. Okay. So if you think that martial arts or any other quest for truth, if you think that it's a static thing, you've made a huge mistake. Dan Ennis, do you know who Dan Inasano is? Bruce Lee's student. He's 82 years old now, okay. if I'm not mistaken, on his age. He turned 80 a couple years ago. But he says that about curriculums. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's yeah, like, he's like, you can make one, but then you should probably uh, update it like every day. I think uh, I love the Proverbs in the Bible. So one of the things about the Proverbs, and it says it about 10 different ways in about 10 different places, but the idea is make your best plan. Utilize your ability to forecast into the future and try to figure out how things are going to work out and order means to ends, you know, uh, Break down big problems into smaller problems. Make sh- uh, little goals that you can achieve and work at it. And then it always, on the other half, says, but God directs your steps, which is the idea of there are things that you cannot predict, so you have to build flexibility into your plan. So prepare, understand as much as you can understand. Uh, develop your skill set as, as much as you can develop your skill set. Then be in the moment. Be in the moment right then in that moment. If you are thinking of how can I make this new thing that's happening in front of me exactly fit the mold of that thing that I learned how to do really well a week ago, you're lost. Just like that guy who's trying to decide how do I address this kick? Well, he was probably getting hit in the back of the head about the time he was thinking of that. Yeah, that happened to me, by the way. I There was a guy in Yoshikai. So he just did... We call them roundhouse kicks. I don't know if that's... We call them... Uh, they, they're called round kicks. Joe called okay, a round, round kick yesterday. But basically, you're, just, you're describing roundhouse. kind of a circle. All right. So we're squared off, opposite, opposite. He comes at me, and there's a low roundhouse, like somewhere in the neighborhood of, uh, of my tibia, right? And then one that would have hit me in the gut. And I'm, I'm watching all of these, and I'm like, what is this guy even doing? It's not a big deal, you know, because it's telescoped. I see it. So there, there, one which would have been to my face, and that was also easy. And in that moment, I, I really don't know what to do with this guy, but this is what happened. Then he swept his foot around the back and did a hook kick right to the back of my head. Yeah. Knocked me down. I did not see that coming. All of this was just a setup. He got you my know, attention. You know, John Claude Van Damme just did that to a UFC fighter yeah, the other day, and that. it made him mad. Well, th- here's what I found out about Van Damme. I was... I'm telling on myself a little bit, but I'm going to do it anyway. I used to love Jean, uh, 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 Steven Seagal. 
Yeah, when somebody I, just text me, Steven Seagal. Uh, hold on, I got my next guest. Uh, maybe take so Josiah from the podcast is. Oh yeah, on. yeah, uh, yeah. he's gonna he's gonna come on at one. So um, I'm gonna shoot him the address really quick. If uh, sorry to, that's you're all right, man. This, I need, this man, is the way I so life, need life someone else to deal with this stuff yes, for me. You, you know do. what I'm saying? Uh, you'll get to that. Uh, well, too, I will say this. I think that getting the podcasting supercomputer set up is going to make things a lot it easier. It will make things Even easier. though I'm not using, but I just feel like I'll be able to integrate so much more into the uh, into the mix without yeah. without needing, because I'm building that computer for my needs without needing a producer, because I'm, I'm a ways out from... Uh, yeah putting another person in the room. Well, and again, honestly, I, I, as much as I like all of the technical improvements that you can make because of what they can do, I still don't think it's the thing. I think basically if you had a guy holding a, a smartphone, capturing the audio and the video, that the content would still be as engaging and gripping and interesting. So as m I do like improving things, but I also... I never lose my sort of on Walden sense of let's keep things as simple as possible, you know. So uh, I was a huge Steven Seagal fan because uh, I watched his first movie that came out. It was like Hard to Kill or Out for Justice or it's definitely a three-word title. Yeah, <laughs> he yeah, had yeah. About he's a been in so many movies. So whatever it was, uh, and uh, immediately I thought, now this guy, he doesn't look like other guys who are doing martial arts. That didn't look stupid. And I was kind of impressed. Not that I, I had no background in Aikido. But my sensibility was that non-sport martial arts should not take a lot of time. That is right? that is totally uh, you a, shouldn't good, have a long good assertion. Fights. You know, and that's it. That's it. It's like, dude, you know, people, people want to talk to me about effectiveness of stuff. And, and like, man, I just had somebody. We just had fighters box, kickbox, and do MMA on the same card the week. Two weeks before that, my wife fought yeah. MMA. You know, but it's like, also, uh, there's no fouls in that. Right. And I just started doing this to people just to prove a point because somebody named Brian Zank, mm -hmm. if you're listening to this, Brian, I'm going to two-handed rape choke you the next time. Wow, there it is. Because he shared a meme that was like, remember when you did, didn't train BJJ and you thought this was a choke? And I'm like, dude. I will choke you unconscious and make you beg for your life with that choke, bro. Like, you think that's what's, not a thing because his, it's a foul. What's his deal? I mean, what's that the, about? Dude, as people start training jujitsu and they put their pajamas on and they get this, oh, they get right. this sense well, of inflated. And it's like, dude, you know what? I can grab you by your neck and sure. you will get so freaked out when I do that. They call it the rape choke. You can't right. even do it in MMA. Right. Yeah. You get DQ. Right. Uh, man. I hate to call I, it the rape choke. It's not well, yeah. Um, especially today that's, that's what they so call much. it at the rules meeting. I get it. In I MMA, understand. You know, there's, but there's probably actual historic reasons for that. Yeah, you know, it's probably employed in that. But you know, act. get somebody in the mount, and then I just yeah. started doing this. Sure, sure. And then they're like, "Well, uh, man, there's so many interesting things to talk about. I'm going to try not to lose my focus." So I was a fan of Steven Seagal, and I was astounded was. by yeah, Still yeah, am, sort of. I don't know. I, I was a, too. I'm still a fan of that guy who was making those movies back then. Yeah, you know, I am do not you know a fan the story of, of his martial arts background. Yeah, that's what I was going to yeah. say. So the first thing I did was check him out. I'm like, well, this looks legit. Is he legit? And then I found out, yeah, not he actually was allowed to have a dojo in Japan. Well, I Unheard mean, of. 
Very few people get to do that. So he's legit in Aikido. No question about that. Uh, but I had a buddy that took, oh, I'm not going to remember the name of it. It's a Korean style. He was really good. One of the Kwans, maybe, or... Um, no, man. I know. I'm, I'm, um, no, man. I'm going to get it wrong anyway. So anyway, uh, he had a video store back in the time when you would rent videotapes before it was streaming. And he said he had Steven Seagal in the store, and he also had uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme in the store. And immediately I started having him, like, Steven Seagal, what's Steven Seagal like? You know, what do you think Steven Seagal? And he said, you know, he's, he's all right, but let me tell you, that Jean-Claude Van Damme, that dude is bad. And so he has credibility for me because I know what he can do. I mean, he and I have, you know, danced enough that I have respect for this guy. So when he's looking at the two of them and says Jean-Claude, because I, I would look at Jean-Claude's movies and I'd say, this looks like a kid who's doing a color by the number. Step one, step two, you know. And I'm like, I don't want to watch a guy do a kata in the movies, you know. Uh, but I, I tucked that away at the time. I said to myself, well... He may be more than what I'm seeing in the movies. That, after all, is show business, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, have you ever heard of the fighter Mirko Krokop? Mm -mm. I don't think uh, I he's can say a, that. He's a famous, pro yeah. It, well, his real name is Mirko Filipovic or something That's like easier. that. Yeah. Filipovic. They call him, he's a Croatian cop. So oh, they call wow. him Mirko Krokop. Oh, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mirko Krokop. So he learned to kick, and like he's knocked people out with some serious head kicks, but he learned to kick for watching Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. Well, yeah. And yeah. if I'm not mistaken, and uh, I would have to look this up, but if I'm not mistaken, Steven Seagal was allowed to do that in Japan because his he married a Japanese uh, uh, lady so he wasn't whose guy dad... Yeah. was one of Yoshiba's black belts. Well, there you go. If I'm not mistaken. Well, yeah, I, I don't know what all the facts are, but if, if that's right, it would make sense. I'm not taking anything away from his skill set. I don't know him personally. I've never seen him in real life, so I don't know. I just, what it taught me was that, uh, well, I guess you can just say don't judge a book by its cover. Uh, because what you see, and you brought this up, what you see when you see... Uh, I don't know what to call it. The spectatorized form of martial arts. Sport. It is a thing to itself. I like it as a sport. I enjoy watching that as a sport. I just don't say that is the we, same we thing say as this martial a lot. arts. Highly stylized. It is because what you do at the beginning is you start imposing these limits. Okay, here's where you can be. So you set an area and you say, here's the stuff you can't do. And so you're already pulling stuff off the table. Here's how long it can go. With every one of those things that seem minor, you've changed it from real life. In real life, this is the list of things that you can't do. Everything's on the table. The, the area that you can be in is any area you can be in. That's right. a, that's another thing too. Um, I'm so glad that I actually study all this other stuff because, like, some of my guys that only do jujitsu, I'm like, like. I would, I mean, if we, if, it, okay, let's say somebody has a slight, like maybe an upper hand on me in jujitsu. Right. Or they're like even on the same rung as me in jujitsu. Uh, I'm going to, if it came down to it, I'm going to punch, kick, knee, elbow, foul them to death. Right. Until they, you know, until jujitsu sure, is not a sure. thing. And that's a, like, I have to teach my classes a little differently than I used to. In the beginning, everybody came to me for MMA. 
Right. Like everybody that did no gi, like submission wrestling and grappling, was doing it um, to fight. And then oh. it slowly started doing it where people started doing sport jujitsu and the gi, and they were doing jujitsu, gi, and no gi more for grappling reasons. And that's kind of what we're living in right now. Sure. But, and I still have people that fight and stuff, but it's, uh, and it's kind of, it's kind of coming, it's like it goes in patterns. Yeah, I think that's true. And, uh, it, well, you know, there seems to be, call it a zeitgeist, I suppose. There's yeah, a spirit yeah. of the age, and, and, and maybe the areas and regions have their own specific flavors. Well, and I, I have to teach these grappler-specific martial artists how to deal with people that might hit them. Well, that's sort of what I wanted to get at, and uh, don't want to leave it unsaid in case anyone's listening and or watching. Uh, you know, when you're practicing self-defense, uh, the only good reason to do that is if you or someone that you love and care about uh, is being threatened. And so under those circumstances, you know, it's a life and death situation is what I'm getting at. So there is, in my opinion, no other legitimate reason to rise to the level. That is war well, yeah. on an interpersonal level. Well, and level. that's why. Um... So I, w I would not fight someone for my ego. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's what these exactly what right. you just said is what would lead someone to saying something. It's like, do you're protected? You're out there protected right. from this choke. Yeah, you know, and you live in a reality where this doesn't exist, but this and a whole bunch of really other twisted stuff exist for me. Yes, <laughs> you yes. know, and it's yeah. like just because it doesn't exist for you doesn't mean well, that some psychopath well, that's, sweating that's meth. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Is that. It depends on what you're trying to do. I see you could you could sign up for martial arts classes legitimate simply as a form of diversion, socialization, and exercise. A hobby. And it would be good for you. So I'm for it. Uh, Most of the people that come to the gym sign up for those types of reasons. Yeah, and all of those are legit. I mean, they're good for you, and I am for it. Uh, but one of the fundamental things about how I was raised, because my uncle was a Marine who is just fresh from combat, he never let me have the naivete to believe that the world was not full of real evil and malevolence. He woke me to that by the time I could walk. And you know he was how training it's me. crazy how difficult it is to wake people to that. Well, uh, sadly, maybe you were a, a you young. learn it when a little after the fact, don't you? When somebody that you love is a victim of some violence, then you can't ignore it anymore. Now, all of a sudden, that's a reality. Or it just like uh, this happened, and I've talked about it a, a few times, uh, maybe on the podcast, but I wasn't here one day, uh, and Cora was homesick. Mm -hmm. And someone came up to the door and knocked on foot. Like, okay. we, there's right. five houses in the school valley that we're in. Right. Like, it, it, they just walked out of From the somewhere. back here yeah. where there's a house and, yeah. so, and they said uh, th then they apparently went up to the neighbor on the hill and were like oh I've been working I'm waiting on my ride and it's just like um, you know I was kind of like I was telling Cora I'm like uh, yeah yeah I know I'm like what <laughs> Don't, you didn't answer the door did you you know did you immediately go get the gun right and right. Uh, you know it's just like because that to me the gravity of that situation was like what was sure. that person doing walking up to my house and knocking on the door? Right, right. It and just kind of freaked me out. It's and, sad but, that it's that way now. When it didn't freak her out as much as I would have liked I'm it I'm sure to. she has a pretty well-developed sense, though, because in my opinion and my limited experience, if you have some experience, uh, both real life and in practice, like you would do in a dojo, 
you can start to read people's intentions better. Mm-hmm. Uh, cops will tell you they can look at a guy and they know by the ticks on his face, by his body posture, they know. And there are tells for sure, you know, that you can tell with people. But uh, the bottom line is that uh, there's real malevolence in the world and you may never encounter it. I pray that no one ever does. But if you do, I would rather be able to protect someone, you know, to prevent someone from getting murdered. If I spend my life doing that, I consider that a good investment. I'm all right with stepping in front of that. I am not okay with not stepping in front of it. So, uh, but, you know, the caveat that I, that I wanted to make is that there is no other reason why I would ever rise up in defense of myself or someone else. I would not do it uh, for being called a name. You know, I would not do it for someone disagreeing with me on a topic. Uh, only if I perceive that it's elevating to the level of physical violence, which I take to be a life and death situation. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this, you know, it's good I get to sit around and talk about all these things because uh, Corey and I aren't planning on having kids for probably three more years. Uh, but these are things, that, these are life lessons I'm going to have to teach my future child. Oh, for about, sure. You know, yeah. because, yeah. I mean, another thing, this is such a hot button issue with us and that we're always dealing with is bullying. Oh, right. And uh, even right. like so in this next door, the glorious state of Missouri is trying to pass bans on um, a kids like under 16 being allowed to train in combat sports and stuff. And they're saying train. They're not saying compete, which no, you got to be 16 and I believe all states to hold an MMA license oh. to compete in like a sanctioned by the Athletic Commission cage fight. It's so misguided. That's yeah. my problem. Well, the but people it's make it. It's just like John McCain calling it cockfighting, you know. Don't you know that, in fact, all the literature, it's not ambiguous, by the way. Uh, Peterson will bring this out. I don't know if it's in his book or just in things that you watch. But uh, uh, the scientists do not disagree that rough and tumble play, without exception, uh, benefits children, their sense of balance and uh, positive adaptation to the world. And I agree. Their I've level of it. success. And I mean starting at the time that they're old enough to wiggle their little arms oh, yeah. around. We start them. as young as, uh, I mean, it's super basic, but three. And I have a, like a, one of my guests, Chris Hausnick, his daughter has uh, been, been doing the programs, man, since she was maybe f- like four, like mm-hmm. just turned four, maybe even when she was three. But she is uh, just like coming up through the programs and like she just like knows like arm bars and omoplatas and crazy things that like your typical six year old girl does not know. Right. But she's just been doing it and of been course. rolling. Right. For like over two years. So here's the question and I don't have the statistics, so I don't know, but uh, I will likely check it out when I get back home because I'm bringing it up. So I would be willing to bet a person who would look at the data would find that engaging in training in either martial arts or uh, firearms use will make you less prone to violence, not more. Yeah, and more yeah, more confident. I would totally agree. Yeah, it's the people who are uh, more threatened that are more prone to explosions. So I've watched this. Now, I know this by my own experiential knowledge, that uh, the guys that I've taken martial arts with are never bullies. They're not bullies. They're the guys that can, they literally, they can take it on the chin. In other words, they will hold their composure because they are not actually uh, threatened by other people's behavior. They know that if it becomes serious, that 
they have a skill set. They can address it, you know, if they need to. So I've seen those kind of people avoid fighting a lot more. Uh, I've never seen any of my friends and most of my friends growing up were concealed carriers, you know. I don't know if it's just because I live in the Deep South or if it was just that was the set of people that I hung out with. I never saw one of them ever pull it, never one time. I wonder if, I it's, ever gonna, if it's ever going to become that, like, oh, you Southerners, you're the concealed carriers. I, I'm sure that, yeah, because this is just as a point of logic and reasoning. When you engage in what they call ad hominem attacks, which mean at the man, Yes. So you uh, attack yeah. the man. Fallacy. Generally, that's because you find that you are losing on substance. So, yes, I expect lots of attacks like that. I've had plenty. I mean, as a Southerner, there have been many a time uh, when I've talked with people uh, in different places, like in D.C., especially metropolitan areas, uh, that will tend to make the assumption, whether they speak it or not, that you're from the South, so you're stupid. Well, it's not necessarily to my advantage to uh, disabuse them of that misunderstanding because being underestimated can actually be a powerful position to be coming from. Uh, but the way that I look at the world is what matters is things that are true, things that actually work. So if your stated goal is to make people safer and your policies make them less safe, perhaps it would be wise to acknowledge the truth and attempt a better policy, right? Uh, so, yeah, like, uh, I don't understand why more people do not adapt that stance. You know, if I'm wrong on a thing, I will change my opinion. I will do it. I just told someone that, I told my class that and my jujitsu class that today because um, I've been learning jujitsu from some awesome people and um, put two people in particular be Hicks and Gracie and Jack Toffer. And they're just like, hey, um, if you do it this way, they could escape in these three ways. But if you do it this way, they can't escape in any ways. Uh, turns out the first way in which they can do the three escapes is a way that you were taught to do it. Right. And that's right. a way that most people are taught to do it. But we do it this way in which right. these three escapes don't sure. work. Sure. And a lot of people will not just be like, oh, my goodness, that changed my whole life. And I'm just I'm that I'm yeah. like, oh, why would I do it any other way ever? Exactly. And it, that's sort of what I mean. It's like there is a bent today, what I call scientism. Well, it's what it's actually called. And that is not just engaging in science, but this belief that a narrow branch of science, so-called, from the Greek word scientia, meaning to know, but they apply it to things like physics and chemistry, which are legitimate sciences. I'm not saying they're not. But they think that if it can't be known through those mechanisms, then it can't be known. Like, we are the only ones. I mean, yeah. Stephen Hawking, with his book about the universe... Uh, would be a good example. He basically said philosophy is dead if it can't be known by science. My philosophy professor said that. Well, here's what's funny about that. That actually is not a statement of science. That is a philosophical assertion that he's making. He's on very shaky ground when he's saying that. So uh, the point being that everything cannot be known through science. For instance, if you have a, a kettle that is boiling 
and I ask you, why is the kettle boiling? You can use the scientific approach. You can tell me, well, uh, I have methane gas that's stored up in a tank or butane or whatever, a flammable gas, and I've opened the aperture, and the gas is because of the pres pressure differential is coming out. I've ignited that with the spark, so now it's rapidly oxidizing, and that in turn is transferring the heat from that chemical breakdown to the bottom of the kettle, which is transferring through the metal, which is transferring into the water, which is exciting the water molecules. They are beginning to boil. That's why the pot is boiling. Yeah, that's true. But you could just as correctly say, because I want a cup of tea. It's two different, w right? Burn. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's what I mean yeah. to say. The approach that everything can be known through this yes, one very... Yes, I totally agree, man. It's not right. It's not advantageous. So I would never say... Uh, like, there have been things from my friends that, that took different disciplines that I've learned from each one of them. Uh, and if I can learn a better thing... I, I knew nothing about Krav Maga. And then I found out about uh, the, the Israeli sort of no-nonsense approach and how it's sort of <clears throat> urban and close-quarters combat, and it's a, a lot of stuff that matters to them, like taking weapons away, and they're thinking about being in like narrow alleyways because there are a bunch mm -hmm. of places like that. And I just saw where this guy, uh, I, I believe he was Polish, a Polish Jew, uh, had just studied up and come up yeah. with some practical stuff and taken a little bit from even here. pre pre World War II, um, if I'm not mistaken, Krav Maga started to kind of formulate in the um, the 30s. Mm. So maybe it was a World War One driven it was phenomenon, yes, yes. Uh, okay, that and makes then sense. too, uh, but but after um, the formation of Israel and um, like 47, yeah, think, and yeah. then too, you have a lot of the Jews go uh, in Israel, uh, like the Israel. Um, before Israel, after World War II, you have a lot of the, um, oh man, what were they called? The Mossad? Yeah, there's the Mossad. Okay, uh, I can't remember if that's the modern, Special if it was forces. called the Haganah, or, or if that oh, was the style. But right. anyway, right after World War II, th they hunted down Nazis oh, yeah, in they did. Uh, South America. Yes, they did. And um, that was kind of your early formation of that as a military tradition. Right. Um, you know, like, we take a different approach even than a lot of mixed martial arts gyms, and I've been doing this since 2013, and, like, we had somebody really, like, all three of our fighters just killed it the other night in boxing, kickboxing, and MMA on the same card. Nice. And, uh, but, like, a lot of uh, your boxing gyms are, uh, don't do MMA, and a lot of your MMA gyms don't do boxing. Right. And so on and so forth. Uh, so you have a little bit of... Um, Sometimes people being deficient and these right. these big um, subsets, and you get that Krav Maga. Like a lot of the, they're like, yeah, we based it off boxing, but we've never studied any boxing, right? And so, like, I took a different route, and I'm like, uh, yeah, we do boxing every day, but we study the sport of boxing and boxing by itself, right? And then we start uh, then yeah. see so something you will only get sport wise in uh, kickboxing or MMA. Is the concept of uh, or self defense like punching to set up elbows? Oh right, right. Now we did. I think I mentioned the other night that uh, if I'm not mistaken, we took <clears throat> on Tuesday and Thursday nights, and it was about three hours of class. It started at the Y, and we moved to a local uh, gymnasium that was at a junior high school, uh, and th then we had a lot of space. It was a much bigger class, but we did what he called Ipan Kumite night, and that's self defense night. And so we addressed scenarios. That's all it was. He would uh, 
just basically act out a scenario and you would have to practice a means of defending yourself against it. And it was a lot of sort of, uh, well, varied techniques. So well, that's, that's, that's a legit method. You know, I do the same thing. I would just put you out there and be like, hey, man, you got a tournament coming up. Or, hey, you know, we're working on mount escapes for three months. Escape them out. Right. You get out. Hey, well, you, okay, you get out. Now you get on, David. All right, escape the mountain. Right, right, And it right. just keep. and then you get to where, I mean, it's, it's a method. It, you know, yeah, I'm yeah. more about teaching methods uh, like sure. that or like sure. how could you make the class and get them better at this phase well, of combat. Well, and I mean, I, I, sh- I should actually come and watch. I haven't watched. I just know some of your students because, as we said, uh, a lot of my friends, you know. Yeah, they do. I mean, man, we're always throwing uh, videos up, and we actually have, I think, 171 oh, videos on our YouTube now or enough. something. Yeah. So, uh, but that's just it, man. I just stopped focusing on all that and just started putting it out there, started that's, creating. That's what I wanted to say is that uh, whenever any of my friends uh, would say, you know, where should I learn martial arts? I would always say, well, go to a dojo where they're actually doing it, not where they're talking about it. I'm fine. Katas are fine. They have their purpose. It's like learning your ABCs. You need to do it. I'm okay with that. But you need to go someplace where you're actually going to make contact and do it a lot, do it often. Because that's how you learn. That's what you're learning My fighters that don't get it in enough. It's obvious. Of course. Like, and, but it's just such a fine line. There's fighters now that don't even spar. You know? I don't understand so that. I, I do because, man, I'm telling you. Like, it takes so much out of you, so and, much well, risk of injury, that sort of your thing. Your brain. Yeah. I've had headaches after sparring well, numerous yeah. times, yeah. you know, and that is, it's, uh, it's kind of a daunting. That would seem to me a matter of balance more than do you do it at all. I, I would it is. Say it is totally. It's it all balance. The right amount. A, a balance, especially with competitors. Like uh, it's this weird thing when you're competing. Like a lot of the athletes I deal with, they have, and I talk to him about it. So much uh, psychology on it. It's like they're never satisfied with their training volume. Right. That could always be doing more. You know. Or it's not always better. Yeah, exactly. And it, that re- is the case with sparring. Since you love Voltaire, you know the perfect is often the enemy of the good. That's yeah. something I'm trying to learn for myself. I have perfectionistic tendencies. Me too, man. That's you know? why, like, uh, with music, I'm that way. But with, like, this podcast and with the videos, it's like, who cares if it's perfect? I'm just going to put it out there. If it's I got a mistake, I'll fix it later. Yeah, I think we should look at perfect less like a still photo and more like a movie. Uh, perfect is more about a process. It involves making mistakes and learning from them. That's perfection, not achieving this this instant flawless thing that kind of thinking is actually counterproductive it leads to depression it leads to procrastination things that actually make your life worse so and i'm saying that to me because this is some i still fight it i still fight uh over what's the right word uh scrutinizing every little detail of a thing uh one of the things i tell myself often is okay the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. So remember what's important. Also, I'll say, uh, okay, just do the next right thing. You don't have to figure out the whole that Well, that just likens back to the uh, living in the moment that we right. each mentioned yeah, on yeah. our own uh, particular account. But, yeah, man. Well, dude, I got my other guest here. Um, oh wow! Yeah, we've literally talked. Uh, but two yeah, hours. well, man, I Sorry. wasn't plan. No, I wasn't planning on having another guest today, and I was. A I had a, a podcast fall through yesterday. Yeah, so you got to make some. I was like, he texted this me. This counts for two. If we went two hours, this is hey. two. Well, man, I would love to have you back Anytime. on. Uh, just I love. Hit me up. Just I love just being able to sit down and like. 
Oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. dude, that one, and too, that, like, as soon as I was talking to the podcast, I was like, dude, you got to, or at the coffee house, rather, who the owner of the coffee house we were talking at is yes. the guest. Oh, so, excellent. How yeah. perfect is that? So, uh, but I was like, dude, you got to come on the podcast. Yeah, I really enjoyed myself anytime. Just well, like man, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. Mr. David Brown, thank you so much for your time. Uh, and uh, we'll look forward to having you back on in the future.